clock it and do all that stuff. I've said here from this platform several times that when I was younger and wealthy, that I nonetheless had problems that come with having a lot of stuff and having a lot of responsibilities because of that. And there are problems, and there are stuff that comes up, and there's stuff, it's, it's big stuff. I mean, it's not just stuff that's sort of like it doesn't really matter. There's stuff that happens that can keep you up at night because they really are responsibilities, and they really are, you know, worries and so on. The rich young ruler who, you know, couldn't do that because of the responsibilities that he had. But the bottom line is, is that when I was going through that period of time, I began to think that, you know, really, being wealthy or being poor, there's not actually nearly as much difference as what people tend to think. That actually what's going on is, is that, you know, you think that there's less problems when you're wealthy, but truthfully, they're just of a different kind. And I have to say, stupidly, that I actually thought sometimes they were probably even worse when you had a bunch of responsibilities for other people and so on. Then I became poor, <laughs> really poor. I became the kind of poor that never lets up. And, and I, I realized something about being wealthy that makes it totally different than being poor. And that is if you're rich and stuff is starting to pile up, you know, pressures and situations and life and decisions and bad decisions and good decisions and just everything and all this stuff is, and everything's getting too much as it begins to overwhelm, as it begins to get to be too much, as it begins to really start piling up on top of you. If you're wealthy, the, the great thing is you can get in your car or a plane and you can go somewhere else for just a couple of days. And it's usually someplace pretty nice because you're going to get away from your problems. So you're going someplace nice. It's fun. I'm not a spa guy, but you get the drift. You know what I mean? You go to a spa and you let somebody give you a massage and suddenly you just don't feel as tense as you did before. I mean, you begin to get a new perspective on your problems. You get refreshed. You get reset. You catch your breath. And you recalibrate. And then when you come back, you're fresh to your problems. When you're poor, that doesn't happen. You can't get away from it. It's always pressing on you. Or at least that's what it feels like, because what we're going to find out today is, is that every person in here, in ways that I think will be surprising, they're so obvious, but in ways that I think you're going to be astounded at, you're going to see that, in fact, every person in here is abundantly rich that God has given them something, every person, no matter what their circumstance, that is extraordinary in its ability to refresh. So that's where we're going today. I think there's some people in here as I look around that could really use this. The rest of you, I hope you'll put up with us. This is something that every one of us needs down to the very core of our being. It's something we're violating to our own harm hugely. So having said that, our prayer is Kathy Miller. This is obvious. I already spoke up their small group. I love that small group. So uh, would you pray for the sermon and lift up another church too, Kathy? Father, as we bow before you, I can't help but be thankful for this body. I can't help but be thankful for what you've poured out unto us by way of your Holy Spirit. Amen.
I can't help but be thankful for the grace and the mercy you show us each and every day. And as Kurt has pressed in to hear your voice and to give your truth to us, I pray that his passion that he has for you and that his love that he has for you might come forth in great measure to each one of us so that we might know beyond a shadow of a doubt that whether we're rich or whether we're poor, we can learn the secret of contentment. Amen. Which is you. Amen. Father, I lift up Normandy Christian Church in South Seattle. Their growth is amazing. Their giving is amazing. And as they meet this morning, may you bless each one of them with a greater understanding of who you are and what you want them to do in this world to give you honor, glory, and praise. Amen. Amen. That prayer was good enough we can just quit right there, right? Yeah? Okay. Well, just in case there's something else. All right. I want to welcome you back to our series, Demystifying the Book of Revelation. We took a, we were still in Revelation, but we did Blockbuster for a few weeks just to have a little fun with it. But Demystifying the Book of Revelation. And um, I want to say something. We're not actually going to be... Oh, oops. That wasn't supposed to happen. We're actually... Oh, anyway. Here's the deal. I hope I got it back. Okay. Now, I want you to do something. The, we're not actually going to be going deeply into Revelation this week. There's actually something that happens in Revelation that we're going to just pick it up, and it's a, it's a, it would seem to be a small thing, and yet when we get done with it, you're going to see it wasn't small at all. But it's not really about Revelation this week. Next week, we're back into the heart of Revelation chapter 10 where we are, and frankly, you don't want to miss it. It's amazing what God's actually doing here. Once again, as we just pull back the curtain and see what he's actually doing. But having said that, What I want us to do is I want us to think of the book of Revelation as a symphony. Okay? Now, remember, you already heard it, but at the beginning of a symphony, what happens? It's the statement about what this is about, musically, right? So it's the... Okay. You can pump that up just a little bit more, okay? Because I want you, when you get to the next ones, okay. So I want you to hear it. That's the statement, right? That's the sort of planting your feet musically and saying, da-da-da-da, this is it, okay? Now, chapter one of the book does exactly that, right? It tells you what it's about. Because it says in the middle of the lampstand, someone like the Son of Man, wearing a long robe, gold sash across his chest, head and hair white like wool, white as snow, his eyes like flames of fire, his feet like polished bronze, refined in a furnace, his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. He held seven stars in his right hand, and a sharp twisted sword came out of his mouth, and his face was like the sun in all its brilliance. He laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I died, but look, I'm alive forever and ever. Who is he? Talk- who is this? Jesus, right? He died, and he has come back again, and he's saying, this is what's going on. I'm alive forever and ever. Write down what you have seen, both the things that are now happening and the things that will happen. See what I mean? We've established what we're doing in this book. This is the beginning of it. Now what will happen is, he's going to tell us the things that now are. Later on we get to what's going to happen. But, but he's going to establish what now is. Now if you were looking at this symphonically, what you're doing now is, now you've established your initial, and now you're going to start working the melody line. You're going to give the first blush at what the melody line sounds like. So the melody line of Revelations in chapters 3 and 4 
two and three, excuse me, is the letters to the churches. And what it sounds like is, see, it's just, it's unfolding as the churches unfold. This is what they sound like. Somehow that's really scratchy. Sorry, it was a lot better. It's all right. But you hear the melody line in it, okay? All right, so it's establishing what happens. And then we get to a moment where, then I looked, I saw a door standing open in heaven. The same voice I'd heard before said, like a trumpet blast, and it said, come up here and I will show you must, what, what must happen after this. So now we're to the next thing. Did you hear on that last one? Did you hear how it, it went? It did, 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 and then it went, dee. There was a last note that holds for quite a long time. And this is a moment, and what it's doing is it's saying, there's something else going to come, but I want you to take a moment right now, an interlude. And it's just briefly, just like it is in the book, but briefly I want you to take a moment. And then here's what happens in chapter 4, 5, and 6. In chapter 4 we have, and again I'm going to play this symphonically in a moment, but I want you to see the rhythm so that you can hear it and get it in your heart. By the way, you do know that Bach and Beethoven, a lot of these guys actually would take scripture and would write their symphonies according to this. So when I, when I, I don't know if Beethoven did this on his fifth, and this is the first part of the fifth, but I'm not just making this up, okay? So the point is, is what happens is there's this moment, and it's in heaven, and you get again, okay, now we've done this now, now da-da-da-da again. Beethoven repeats the frame, refrain, and then he goes into, here's the line, but now he's starting to mess with the line a little bit, and you remember what's happening in chapter 4. Jesus is there, God, the throne, all this stuff, but there's a problem. So you hear tension in the music. There's a problem. Who can open the scroll? There's seals on it, and nobody is worthy to break them. So there's a tension, but then they get broken, but then, uh-oh, it really starts getting tense. And so you'll hear the music get more and more and more tense. And then it'll go into chapter 7 where it goes six of the seven seals are broken. There's still a seventh to be had that starts in chapter 8. But in chapter 7 what happens is, is that all of a sudden it goes into an interlude. Remember it? That's when Christians are raptured out and the 144,000 are sealed to stay in. So there's a total change in what's taking place. But while there's a total change in what's taking place, the thing that's important for us today is... There's a moment to think, to reflect, to breathe. There's tension, but then there's a moment to reflect. What was that? What does it mean? What's coming next, but I've got a moment, a break, the two or three days away to think, to reflect. So listen to how it sounds symphonically. This is heaven again establishing the theme again now here's the it's starting to do this but pretty quickly now listen the, there's other things that are coming up you, see, you hear the tension coming up this is who can break the scrolls and, and it's what are we going to do who can break the scrolls and then all of a sudden the scrolls are broken and now this is what happens now it goes into the, now it goes into the refrain the interlude I mean, musically, what literally is happening here is, is that we're supposed to be, we're, we're made tense, and then we're released. But you hear it towards the end of this, it's starting to get tense again, isn't it? Because, uh-oh, the Christian's been raptured. What comes next? Well, what comes next is, the first angel blew his trumpet, and hell and fire mixed with blood were hurled to the earth. 
A third of the earth was burned up. A third of the trees were burned up. All the grass was burned up. These trumpets are happening. This big, dramatic trumpets. And there's six of the seven trumpets now that are going to be released. And they sound like this. I wish that sounded better. Sorry. I just want you to picture, you know, a couple hundred people up here blowing with all their might. And you hear the, the finality of it and the hugeness of it and the bigness and it rattles you right down to your bones. But then what happens? Chapter 10, where we are now. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, surrounded by a cloud, a rainbow over his head. His face shone like the sun. His feet were like pillars of fire. See, what's happened here is, is all of a sudden, we again have this moment. Six of the seven again. Six of the seven seals. Then an interlude. Then the seventh seal, in which is the seven trumpets. Now we've had six of the seven trumpets blow. And now again, there's an interlude. And we're going to talk next week about what's happening right here, what the change is, and it's phenomenal. Very important. But the bottom line is, is what I want you to hear right now is, is when we get to these interlude moments, once again, tension build up, but then there's time to reflect. See? It gives you a moment to breathe again. It gives you a moment to get perspective again. Catch your breath. See that? Now, just because, I'm not going to take you anymore through, this, through the thing, but I couldn't let you go without that sort of quintessential, you know, the ending that makes the ending of all songs have to sound like this. You know what I mean? So I just want to show you, you know, because the book of Revelation is about the end, and so the book of Revelation is about this. <laughs> And I mean, and that's the end, right? Now, that's not actually the end of the symphony. That's just the end of the first movement, but you get the point. What I want us to see is, is that God has built into, and we're going to see it a lot more, but I want you to see that God has built into everything interludes, moments, moments to reflect. Here's another example of one in a psalm that God inspired David to write. And this particular psalm, this is a problem time for him. See, it's a psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. He's running away. This is actually in Scripture. I didn't put that in there. This is the title for this psalm. And so he's obviously under some stress, right? And so what he does is he says, Lord, how my foes increase. There are many who attack me. Many say about me. There is no help for him in God. David's being run out of town by his own son. He's fleeing Tail between his legs, right? The one guy's griping at him. The whole nine yards is going on. And what's being said is there's no help for him in God. And then you see that word selah. What's a selah? It's a moment. It's an interlude. It's a moment to think. Because I'm in the middle of my pressure, I'm saying God can't help me. But I need to take a breath. Is that true? I need to reflect so that I consider what's actually true. And so David, having taken a breath and gotten perspective, says, but you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, the one who lifts my head. I cry aloud to the Lord. He answers me from his holy mountain. Selah. Now ponder that. See, what's the truth of it? What's the peace of it? What's the presence of it? A selah is 
um, an interlude is a, a moment in God. A moment away from your troubles. In he who's a peace that passes all understanding. So that you get this perspective again. And suddenly you look differently again at your problems, right? You come back to them with a new attitude, a fresh perspective. I want us to... I want you to see something. This is one of my favorite stories in the whole of the Old Testament. I'll tell you why in a moment. But the story is Elijah. And Elijah, the, 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 the land of Israel has gone very, very badly. The king is a bad king. And he's got a mother who is, you know... I was going to say the ultimate mother-in-law, but I actually really like my mother-in-law, so hi, Donna. But I'm just telling you, you know, she, she's, she's really, really bad news. She's causing the whole of Israel to chase after another god, Baal or Baal. I'll just call him Baal to keep it easy, okay? And the point is, is that all of these prophets that she's raised up, she's getting rid of the worship of the true God, and she's causing people to follow after Baal. And so Elijah finally says, enough of this. Let's just have a contest. You guys build your altar. I'm going to build an altar. You do whatever you want to do. See if, and make a sacrifice. I'm going to make a sacrifice. We'll see whose God comes to consume the sacrifices, right? So the 450 prophets of Baal, they, 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 you know, dance around it and they're cutting themselves and they're making all kinds of noise and they're sending up all these prayers and incantations and so on. And Elijah, in one of the funnier moments in all the scripture, says, you know, you know, he hasn't answered yet. It's been quite a while. You know what? Maybe what you ought to do is, maybe you ought to cut yourself a little more and yell a little louder because maybe he's going to the bathroom and he just can't hear you. And so, you know, right, he's egging him on, and, and nothing ever happens. And so finally, Elijah says, okay, now go down to the river, fill up your pots, drench this altar so that people can know how big a God God really is. Drench the altar, and sure enough, God comes in a fire and consumes not just the sacrifice, but even the dust. God consumes the whole thing. So Elijah says, now that you know that God's real and that one isn't, kill those false prophets. So they kill him. So Jezebel hears about it, and she says, I'm going to do to you what you did to them, which is cut them up in little pieces. Now, an interesting part of the story right here. He runs away. He's just seen God consume the sac- Why wouldn't he just bring it home, babe? I was going to say another word. <laughs> Starts with a B. Has an itch in it. Okay. I didn't say it, though. I just want you to know. I didn't actually say it. Okay. All right. But bring it on, okay? So he's going, bring it on, okay? And, and you would think that that's what he would do, right? But instead, what he does is he runs away. Now, you would think God'd be mad at him running away. You know what he does instead? What God does is he feeds him with a bird. Birds bring him food. And he goes way the heck away, and he's, he's in this cave, and he's hiding in this cave, and God comes to him. And, and I, I just want to tell you as, as we read this, I, I just need to have you, I, I want you to feel something that I suppose it's impossible, but when I was in seminary, this was one of the most meaningful moments of my entire seminary experience. Because I was in the library, and I was doing work on a paper, and I came across this passage, and I had to do with something, and I was looking to get a good commentary and get some work on it and so on. Really good friend, Bob Sivany, uh, worked at the library, and, and I said, you know, Bob, I, I just am really working on this, and I'd like to get a really good source on it. And tell me what a really good commentary is. And, and Bob said, you know this, I can't even remember the name of it. I thought it was Anchor, and I thought it was Lang, but it's not even one of those. But, but he's, Bob said, look at these guys. He says, it's a really old commentary. But he said, boy, I read that commentary a lot of times and I just feel like it's like God wrote it. 
You know, it just is so. So I opened this commentary up and I started reading these words and I'm telling you, it was just like God was talking to me. Just so tenderly and beautifully. Now the passage is this. He says, what are you doing, Elijah? Okay, he comes to him in the cave. What are you doing, Elijah? Notice he's not saying, what are you doing, Elijah? There would be an explanation point for that. By the way, can I say something? Everybody who hates emoticons in writing, I just figured out why it's okay to put them in there since I put them in there all the time. I know it makes you look like a kindergartner when you do that, but I like to put smiley faces and things. I just figured out something. Punctuation is emoticons, right? Johnny Wasaki, come on, give it to me, okay? John is, John's trying to teach me how to write where I don't need emoticons. I, I just feel like, what's the point? <laughs> you know, do it easy. <laughs> Love you, John. He's a phenomenally good writer. By the way, Mr. Emoticon is Dave Brunk over here. I got a letter from him. There's only like a few actual words in it. All the rest of it is just emoticon. And it communicates absolutely spectacularly, in my opinion. Okay? It does look like a fifth grader, but it works. Okay? All right. <laughs> it's true. I love it. He's a brilliant writer. By the way, he wrote the, he, sorry, total tangential, but they, the Rogue Saints is about to come out, and he wrote the script for it, and I'm telling you, the script is brilliant. I was a script writer, and I was in Hollywood doing it, and I never wrote a script as good as what he wrote, never. So, just phenomenal. Anyway, okay, enough of that pumping up my brother, right? All right. <laughs> I love it. So then God said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke rocks into pieces before the Lord. Who's doing this? The Lord. Okay, this is not just a normal windstorm. Though God is causing this windstorm. But then look what it says. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, and we can assume it was as terrifying as was the wind, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, which we can assume was consuming everything, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. Now, apparently, Elijah, to get away from the fire, has gone back into the cave. So it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in a mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And suddenly, a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here? Why are you here? I understand something. For a guy who's afraid of Jezebel, we know what he's doing there. He's hiding. For a guy who has just seen what God can do, we know why God's asking him the question. <laughs> I consume the sacrifice. Why are you hiding? I'm the God of winds and earthquakes and fires. I'm the God who can keep you safe. But I want to go to a deeper place on this. What's God trying to communicate in those verses by doing it that way? Is God the God who can do a wind that can not only break rocks but whole mountains? Is God the God who can not only do an earthquake that'll scare you but one that'll just split the world in half? Can he do that? Is God the one, as he says he will do, is God the one who can bring a fire that will consume the whole of the earth? And the heavens, by the way. Is God the one who can do that? course he is. It's not even like hard for him. It's not like he has to really think hard and breaks a bead of sweat. This is what God can do. But understand what he's trying to say in these verses. That's not who I am. 
Yes, I can do it. Yes, I do do it. But do you want to know who I really am? I'm love. God is love. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. That's something that's almost gone from our contemporary American culture, right? Nobody fears God anymore. That's why we're so unwise. The beginning of wisdom is fear of the Lord, but do understand its end is not fear. Its end is one with him as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one. Intimacy. The greatest, deepest, most wonderful, most incredible, most life-giving, most fulfilling, most satisfying, most rewarding, most rich, most peaceful, most bring you into a wholly new place. That's what God's in. <laughs> He's in us. If you've accepted him. And if you haven't, man, does he want to be. Because he wants to bring you peace. He wants to bring you joy, fullness. Him. That just brings a smile to your face. It can't not do, but do that. If you only know God in the big and the scary, you don't get a smile on your face when you think about God being in you. <laughs> You've got to know who he is really. God is love. That's what the word says. That's what God himself proclaimed about himself. I'm not these other things. I can do them and I do them for my purposes. But you want to know who I am? I'm going to read you a letter. This is a letter from somebody in the congregation who for now is going to be anonymous, although he's going to speak here in a little bit and and when he does, uh, he may tell the story, he may not. We're talking about big things happening. And we're talking about the need to have an interlude to reflect back. What's happening in Revelation 10 right now, this mighty angel has come down and in his hand is a small scroll that had not been opened. We'll look at that more last time. Or that had been opened, excuse me. He stood with his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. Here's what that means. This is the sea because it's right. So here's the right foot and here's the left foot on the land. Do you see what he's saying right now? The whole earth is mine. <laughs> see? I'm, I'm, I'm all the seas and I'm all the land. What else is there? <laughs> see? I'm in control of it all. Now listen to that. Listen to this in that light. Hi, Kurt, I wanted to drop you a line and let you know that your sermon series really is what's been happening in my life recently. Here's what, I, this, here's what he's saying when he says that. I want to say what the Lord's been bringing to us time and time and time again is God's in control. This whole book of Revelation is comfort food. No, it's not. It scares the heck out of you. No, not if you read it right. That's why we're demystifying it. When you read it right, what you see is over and over, even here in chapter 10, God's bringing an interlude for you to get perspective, not just be overwhelmed by the crisis but get perspective and see it new. And so he says, it really is what's been happening in my life. Sorry this story's a little long-winded, but something tells me that you understand going overtime when you believe God's saying something. I don't know what he's talking about. <laughs> I've mentioned before I was in a pretty dark place a couple of months ago. This person has had a life-threatening, still has a life-threatening situation going on. So this is not like a little thing. This is a big thing. 
And it's key to know that this had nothing to do with him. It wasn't like lifestyle or anything like that. It was, it was a genetic issue. But, all right. So he says, I'm in a pretty dark place a couple of months ago. I was dealing with trying to make sense of trials that didn't seem to have a point and I hadn't brought on myself. I kept hearing the same thing. God is good. God works all things together for good. That was me saying that. Let go and let God, etc. I'd pretty much put on a fake smile and repeated the sentiments back. But the truth of the matter was that I didn't understand why God would let these things happen to someone that was trying to follow him. I never questioned whether or not God existed, but there was a voice creeping in the back of my mind that though God was real, he was not good. The image I had, and by the way, go through a really tough time. Okay, right? Nobody judges him for having said that. I thank him for being honest about it. The image I had in my mind was of a bully at school. Listen to this. I almost edited it out. The image in my mind was of a bully at school that gives a kid a wedgie and expects to be thanked and seen as merciful when the underwear strap breaks. I was very close to walking away and saying, if God wants me, he knows where to find me. I decided to make one last push towards understanding trials. I found a sermon series about trials from a pastor at a church I used to attend somewhere else. It was pretty much all the same message I'd heard dozens of times before, but at the very end, he shared Job 23.10. He quotes it, But he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. Let me suggest to you that that was a still, small, quiet voice to him. In a time of crisis. The verse and the context seem to be digging into me. Here's, here's what the verse context is. He wrote it and it's worth reading. Even today my complaint is bitter, says Job. His hand is heavy in spite of my groaning. If only I knew where to find him. If only if I could go to his dwelling. I would state my case before him, fill my mouth with arguments. I would find out and I would find out what he would answer me and consider what he would say to me. Would he vigorously oppose me? No, he would not press charges against me. This thing that we looked at a couple weeks ago, this thing that's happening to me is unfair, Job says. There, the upright, when we get to lay our case before God, he says, there the upright can establish their innocence before him, and there I would be delivered forever from my judge, God. God, but not good. See? If I go to the east, he, but if I go to the east, he's not there. If I go to the west, I do not find him. When he is at work in the north, or when he is at work in the north, I do not see him. And when he turns to the south, I catch no glimpse. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. I want you to see in the context, even the way that this struck his heart was different. My feet have closely followed his steps. I have kept to his way without turning aside. I have not departed from the commands of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my daily bread. That week, for some reason I didn't understand at the time, I became obsessed with a show called Surviving the Cut. It's a reality show about elite special force training camps. The show I watched was about a marine recon training. Six weeks of every kind of pain I can imagine. 70% drop out before it's completed. And this is 70% that have chosen to be there because they were already at the top. This isn't just 70% of everybody. This is 70% that have self-selected into something that was brutal, and even then, 70% drop out. Okay? Now, all along I was watching with a sort of morbid curiosity. The last two days in particular had me shaking my head in complete disbelief. The Marines were, were kept without sleep and food. They were forced to hike miles on end with 90-pound packs, then attacked with tear gas, and made to carry 200-pound dummies along with their packs. 
the entire way back to base, all while being hit with tear gas. Whenever one of them would stop for any reason, the drill sergeant would mock them, tell them to quit, scream at them, etc. I kept thinking that it was ridiculous. No offense to any military people, but I thought it was just stupid. I'm very happy to have those guys protecting us, but it seemed to be nothing but torture for torture's sake. Eventually, they reached the end, and they were greeted with cheers of recon graduates past. By the way, he puts in parentheses, an awesome vision of heaven, if you ask me. The kicker, though, was something the drill sergeant said. It was something along the lines of, I'm proud of these soldiers. They have endured a lot and are now ready for what they're going to face in combat. I was hit with the realization that the drill sergeant wasn't their enemy. He was their friend. He had not put them through the training that they went through. Uh, he, he had not put them through the training that they went through. Ha, I'm sorry. Had he not put them through the training that they went through, they wouldn't be ready for the battle that awaits them. The 70% dropped out, if allowed to skate through the training, would have died on the battlefield and potentially put other soldiers in danger as well. It struck me that God is indeed good. But my understanding of good is flawed. My understanding of good has always been closely tied with comfort. But God sees beyond comfort into the eternal. The comfortable thing would have been for God to let me continue with a faith that hadn't been challenged in years. He could have let me unprepared. He could have left me unprepared for whatever is to come, but that would not be good. And I can say now with more assurance than ever before that God is indeed good. Listen, though I still don't completely understand what's going on, I know that God is moving and that he is good and that he's, what he is bringing is worth the trials. I've changed my prayers. Listen to this. I've changed my prayers from praying against trials to praying that it will indeed come forth as gold. This passage in Revelation says exactly the same thing. If we're ever going to get to the place to where we will continue to pursue the God in a life that is filled with windstorms, that is filled with earthquakes, that is filled with consuming fires. If we are ever going to get to a place to where we can just relax long enough to take the interlude, to take the rest, we're going to have to know something about him. This is the thing that we've been seeing over and over. Look at this. This angel that descended, by the way, it's not Christ probably. Some people say that it is. It might be, but I don't think it is. He gave a great shout like the roar of a lion. And when he shouted, the seven thunders answered. When the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, keep secret what the seven thunders said and do not write it down. Now, I want to tell you where my mind goes. What did he say? <laughs> right? Don't you? I want to speculate and make an argument for he probably was saying thus and thus and so and so. And by doing so, we actually miss what he is trying to communicate. Because here's what he's trying to communicate. There's always something more going on than what you know. There's always something more going on than what you know. Always. I always have stuff. And I'm not revealing it all to you. And there's a good reason for it. And when you find out, you're not going to complain about it. We've got to serve the God 
who is bigger than us. Bigger even than our capacity to understand and imagine. I, uh, this idea that God takes us like this and for a reason. Would you just look at your own life for a second? Would you, I want you to just do this. You do realize that every single person in here is going through every 90 minutes, you're going through a full cycle, right? Up energy, down tiredness. Every 90 minutes that happens in everybody's life here. You do realize that every day at 3 o'clock, you feel like crap. You do realize that what's happening there is, see, what we do is, is we get a Red Bull or a cup of caffeine. Oops. Oh. Oh, I spilled my nice little thing. Sorry, Julie. And my cup so I don't get to drink my nice little umbrella drink now. Oh, too bad. I can't figure out how to get in the chair without falling over. And I think that I think that, that also will hurt the analogy. Let me try it this way. <laughs> yeah, thank you. At three o'clock in the afternoon, your body says no mass. You know what's actually going on right there? Literally, your brain cells have been working all day. You know, your brain takes up more energy than any other organ. The brain is, is just using huge amounts of calories to work. And what happens is it's been spinning and processing and doing this stuff this all day long. And at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, it's done. It needs a moment to reset. Do you realize that when you drink a Red Bull or a cup of coffee and you get that caffeine in, you do know what it does, don't you? You think what it does is wake you up. It doesn't do that. What it does is it blocks the body's ability to tell you that you're done. That's why you feel more alert. It's not actually that it ups you. What it does is it stops the body from telling you, stop. <laughs> That's what caffeine does. Now, you, you know, you love Starbucks. I don't care, Okay. But I just want you to know what you're doing to yourself because what God's actually doing is, think, think about 3 o'clock. Think about how opportune a time 3 o'clock is. That's right at the point in the day when, you know, you started out the day with your big list, right? The, big, the primary things you had to get done. And then somebody called you. But then you still kept on your, and then somebody walked in your office. And then somebody interrupted. And then somebody, and then something, and then something, and then something. And right about at 3 o'clock is when you're losing the day as is right? All of this stuff is piled up on top of you, and you're going to not get done what you decided you should get done. And it may be that there's something else you should get done. What if you did something different at three o'clock than took a cup of coffee? What if you just, if you're a worker that sits, you got up and walked. If you're a worker that works on your feet, if you sat down. Now, if you're a, if you're a laborer, I suggest you do that somewhere where the boss can't see you. And I suggest that you work really hard at the other time so that he doesn't mind that you're sitting and resting for a moment. But what if you were to take a minute and what if you were to reflect upon how your day is going? What if you were to do what your body's trying to tell you to do, which is to stop for a minute and just, just consider what's happened during this day? What's it look like? What's it feel like? Has it gone well? See it? What if you took that moment, 15 minutes maybe? What if you took those 15 minutes and you just sort of contemplated 
not only how the day had gone, but you contemplated where it could now go, given that you still have a couple hours left. See how perfect it is it's at three? Because you still have time to salvage the day. If you recalibrate, refocus, come at it fresh. We have monthly cycles. I'll talk about them in a little bit, but we have yearly cycles. Those are called seasons. Understand in a season what's happening, right? In the springtime, big time work because you've got to plant, right? In the fall, in the summer, what do you do? It's not nearly as much work in the summer. You're just are tending what's actually growing. God's doing the increase. You're just tending what's happening. And then in the harvest, in the fall, man, you work your tail off again, right? And then what do you do in the winter? Fix stuff. Rest. Get ready. You do know it's not just you that's supposed to be doing that. You do know it's the whole world that's supposed to be doing that does that, right? You do know the whole world in winter comes to a stop. And it resets itself, recalibrates, refreshes. Doesn't it? Something to all of these things. I want you to think about, by the way, I, I skipped over a week. I, I need to go, I need to just dial back and, and think about a week. Does a week have a rhythm to it? You know what Sabbath is, right? So Sabbath is that time that God is saying, I don't want you to do anything else. What I want you to do is stop and think. Just ponder. What's, what's happened? What's going to happen? Not, not planning now. This is just a time for reflection, catching your breath, recalibrating so that you can come back into it strong. I, I want you to see how strongly God feels about Sabbath. We've talked about it a lot, but I just want you to read this. I, I just talk about it usually and I don't read it. Tell the people of Israel, be careful to keep my Sabbath day from generation to generation. How long is that? As long as there is, right? 4,000 years now, the people of Israel have been the people of Israel. So for 4,000 years. You must keep the Sabbath day. Anyone who desecrates it must be put to death. I don't know about you, but that just seems way overboard on his part. Not only put to death, but he says anyone who works on it is cut off from the community. Now that means death, but it also means they're a cancer. He's trying to communicate what the problem is. They're a cell that is growing. You see, what God meant was for us to have dominion over. What's happening when we don't take a Sabbath is the world is trying to get dominion over us, trying to get dominion over us, trying to get dominion over us, and finally it will succeed. And when that happens, we become a cancerous cell. Because now we're out there making all kinds of mistakes, all kinds of bad decisions. We're making decisions that aren't thoughtful. They didn't have an interlude. They didn't have a time of reflection. Has anybody ever been making a decision and you were in the tension of the moment so you made the decision in the tension of the moment. And you felt like it was absolutely the right decision. God was in it. It was totally the right decision. But then you had a moment to rest later. And now all of a sudden that decision looks totally different, doesn't it? Sometimes it's the same thing. But very oftentimes it isn't the same thing at all. Huh. What's going on? God wanted you to Take a moment, because you'll see life differently. So we've already done monthly, we've already done yearly. I want you to see two life cycles, right? Start off as a kid, feel a certain way. 
grow a little older. Can I just tell you, I'm actually having one of the most wonderful seasons of my whole life. It's a big transition. But I'm actually entering into what Scripture refers to as father, but, you know, older. I'm loving it. I feel like I've got more peace than I've ever had in my whole life. My body hurts quite a bit. That's a bummer. But I got to tell you, I'm digging it. I feel wiser. I don't think I actually am. But I feel like there's a wisdom that's coming into my life from me ramping down and hitting the stage of life. David talks about the Psalms in the Psalm 23, and he says, look, you know, God is going to take you along paths of righteousness. That means a hard place. That means get it right. In fact, a path of righteousness goes into the valley of the shadow of death. <laughs> that's a place where what happens, you've got to die. Okay? There's something that's trying to kill you, and you've got to put it to death. His rod and his staff comfort you in there, which doesn't sound very comforting unless you're in a place where you're dying. And then it actually does feel pretty comforting, like the email said. And then what happens when you come through that is now all of a sudden you're sitting at a table with a feast prepared, your head anointed with oil, your cup overflowing in the presence of your enemies. The very thing that you were afraid of before surrounds you and it no longer makes any difference. You get to where you understand. Oh, this is more of that. He says it again. Generation to generation, covenant for all time, permanent sign. You've got to kill him and so on. Anyway, Surely your goodness. Just pass that off. Surely your goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life. And I will live in the house, the presence of the Lord forever. But look at how the psalm starts. We know how it ends. But look at where, and I, I propose to you that Psalm 23 is a cycle that people are going through all the time in their life. Seasons. This movement that we're talking about right now. And look at where it's got to start. The time of reflection. What's the thing that I've just come through? What does it actually mean? What's coming up? How do I reset? How do I recalibrate? How do I get back into my heart the bigness, the fullness, the glory of God? Because when we get the bigness and the fullness and the glory of God, now we're actually consistent with who God is. When we reset, we don't let our problems define our reality. We don't let our situation and our circumstances define who God is. When that happens, you find the true God. The angel I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand towards heaven. He swore an oath in the name of the one who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and the earth and everything in them. Do you see the majesty here that's being spoken to? The earth and everything is in it. The sea, that's everything in it. And he said, remember the heaven and the earth, he was standing in both. And he said, there will be no more delay. When the seventh angel blows his trumpets, God's mysterious plan will be fulfilled. It will happen just as he announced it to his servants, the prophets. The things of scripture, the things that you have gotten as witness in your heart are true. They are more true than every trial, than every circumstance, 
than everything that has ever come against you. So we're going to do one last thing here. I want you to take out your notes. If you don't have your notes, ushers, could you bring them forward for anybody who doesn't have them? Because I want you to write this down. We're just going to take one more second on this. Here's what we're going to do. Daily, every 90 minutes. I think if you take a minute and you actually just write this down and do some stuff like that, it'll go into other parts of your brain and you might actually remember this past lunch. That's the hope in the heart, right? So every 90 minutes, just get up. If you're a person that sits when you work, get up, walk around, change the scenery. Five minutes. Just, you know, walk to the thing, get a cup, glass of water, whatever, right? Okay? Every 90 minutes. Then at 3 o'clock every day, take 15 minutes and change your location. This is actually get out of the building, or if you're on a site, you know, walk off the site. Do something, and just truly change your perspective. Change everything. This one takes another moment than this. It takes a little longer. So take the little time, and just ask yourself the question, what have I done so far today? How's it gone? What can I do to finish strong in him? How can I make this the day that he has made, so I might rejoice and be glad in it? How can I take that all the way? On a weekly basis, figure out when your Sabbath day is on any particular week. Ours floats from Thursday to Friday at this point in time, depending on what's happening on Friday. If we can't do it on Friday, we take it on Thursday. Otherwise, we take it on Friday. But just do that. Figure out what day is the week, a day of the week that I can do this. And then here's what you have to understand. It's going to take faith to do it. You're not just going to be able to do it because something's going to come against it. I just promise you. You're going to have to make a commitment to do it, and then you're going to have to, trusting God, do it. On a monthly basis, how about we start doing this? You do understand that every month in a different season has a different opportunity in it to experience something new, different. It opens up your mind. You do know that when they talk about senility and dementia and things that I'm concerned about, you do know that... You do know that when, you, when, you, when they talk about those things, what they say, the thing that resets and refreshes the mind more than anything else is experiencing something new and fun. It literally washes stress from the cells and resets you. So make a plan. We're going to go skiing. Well, I don't have enough money for skiing, so we're going to go hiking. See what I mean? We're going to go hang out at a beach park. Just make a plan during that month of something that you're going to do that's going to be different. That's going to be fun. Make something of the month. Come at it intentionally. Yearly. Am I in sync with the season? A couple of, couple of weeks from now, it's going to be dark at noon. Okay? And when that happens... People have a funny way of getting depressed, right? So I send out a little reminder, reminding people that it's not that you're going crazy, and it's not that your husband or wife is that big of a jerk. (laughs) It's that you're depressed because your body is resetting. The melatonin and the, the oil change of the blood and everything else, you're just going through a change. So work with it, not against it. You can caffeinate your way right through it, and what will happen is you're building up poison in your system, and it will come crashing down. 
you can forestall and make worse the fall. Right? By just powering through it. Or you can participate in it and see it for what it is. A time to get some good shut eye. <laughs> right? Just a good season for that. How about this one? This is the one we just talked about, the life stage. Am I in sync with my life stage? Or am I injecting testosterone so that I'll look like a 22-year-old? Or am I not active like I'm supposed to be because I am young and I'm supposed to be? Am I in sync with what I'm doing? Am I, am I letting gaming overtake the physicality that God would have me to enjoy at a time when I don't hurt? See how practical? I just want to end it with this at the bottom of your notes. I will look for and enter into God's ordained interludes. Because God has made me rich. I just have to enter into it. It's not about money. He has made me able to reset, to recalibrate. Every hour and a half, every day, every week, every month, every year, throughout the whole of my life. Lord, in Jesus' holy and precious name, I pray for this congregation. I ask you that you would fill us with rest, refreshing rest. Send us back out, paths of righteousness, even the valley of the shadow of death. We do want to get to those tables that you prepared for us. But in Jesus' holy and precious name, God, show us how to enter into your rhythms. The loud stuff is going to get all the attention, and we know it. So God, teach us how to hear the still, small, quiet voice. Teach us how to capture the interlude. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Refresh your body. I want you to reach down in front of you and grab this cup. And while you're grabbing it, I want to tell you that I finished this sermon at Thursday at 6 o'clock. And that would be about two hours earlier than normal. I usually finish about 8 o'clock at night. Thursday was a really nice day. Remember it? <laughs> Remember it well. You're going to need to in a few weeks here. But I, I had, after I get done with the sermon, I have another couple of hours of emails and work because and, I'm about to take a Sabbath the next day on Friday. And so there's a lot of stuff I have to do. And so I'll usually end up working till about 11 or 12 at night. That's not healthy. It's not good. I don't say that to brag. I say that to my shame and harm. And it is to my harm. It messes up your whole Sabbath too. But because I'd just written this sermon, I actually had it in my mind that taking a rest was like a good thing. And so I did something. I called up Julie at 6 o'clock and I said, can you be done? I said, if you can be, I'll quit. And she said, I'd love it. And she came home and we went out and, and went to Daniel's. And it's got that gorgeous view looking over Lake Washington, the Olympics. And there was this incredible sunset. And it was just marvelous.
and I fell in love yet again with my wife. These interludes are the most precious times. They're the moments that God is in. <laughs>